perhaps only rivaled by the 23rd Psalm. I think Psalm 51 is perhaps one of the most recognizable Psalms in the entire Bible, which I find to be a really fascinating and somewhat surprising little detail considering the circumstances in which this Psalm was written. If you have a Bible that has those little prefixes to the Psalms that perhaps give you little details about when the Psalm was written or who this Psalm was written to, most, if not all Bibles, will have a note that says something like this, at least in my Bible it says, to the choir master, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Or something similar, perhaps your Bible has a similar notes or something that sounds somewhat like that. These notes that preface Psalms aren't inspired, which means we don't have to always be authoritative, perhaps about them all the time. But even still, there is almost zero debate about, the, about this particular Psalm and its background, which, as we will soon learn here this morning, is quite obscene. Because what we have here in Psalm 51 are the gut-wrenching, I would describe them, the gut-wrenching words of King David after he had been thoroughly humiliated and decimated and devastated by that prophet of the Lord, Nathan, who came to him, encountered him, you might recall, after David and his deplorable actions against Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. We find that story, go with me if you will, as we lead into Psalm 51, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. As a way of introduction to this particular psalm, I think it is only right and only fitting that we get the context in which David is praying and confessing these words to the Lord alone. Indeed, this text in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is one of the most uncomfortable in all of Scripture. As the historian brings us through in painstaking detail, I would say, in this very painful and very dark event in Israel's history. The short version is the fact that King David is not where he should be. While his men are off on the battlefield fighting for the patriotism of Israel, if you will, he lingers behind. He stays behind in Jerusalem where he eventually surrenders and succumbs to the temptation to take what is not his. Notice verse number 1 of 2 Samuel 11 as it says, In the spring of the year. The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It had happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, Excuse me, I am pregnant. So he sees this woman and he takes her for himself and has his way with her. But as it turns out, she is with child. She gets pregnant. 
which immediately prompts David to start covering his tracks. And the rest, or perhaps even the bulk of this chapter, is David trying to finagle the situation to where it looks like he has no uh, blood on his hands, so to speak. So it looks like he didn't mess up at all. Side note, if you have to cover up something that you've done, chances are you shouldn't have been doing that thing. And here David learns that quite the hard way. A scheme after scheme that David comes up with here in this chapter falls short. Leading David to make this sort of panic, but I would also say meditated decision. To have Uriah positioned in such a way on the battlefield that his death was almost guaranteed. Look at verse 14. In the morning, after a long time of trying to finagle the situation again. In the morning, it says, David wrote a letter to Joab. It sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So the strategy works. He sleeps with someone who is not his wife. And in order to cover his tracks, he has the bright idea to get rid of the husband. And he does so sufficiently, putting him in a place where he is certainly going to just be another among the casualties of war. One who perhaps will not think twice about. So David's plan, unfortunately for Uriah, works. And it leads David in verse number 26 to take Bathsheba as another of his wives. Notice when the wife of Uriah heard, verse 26, that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Months pass. Months pass in the kingdom. Life just kind of goes on. Only a certain few people know the true story behind Bathsheba and David. They are only a certain select group are sort of in the know. And I imagine, and this is just me sort of conjecturing, that there were some, uh, there were no shortage of whispers and, and, and rumors that were circling about the palace in those days with how fast the king's newest wife bore him a son. That was quite quick, David. But those were quickly explained away, dismissed, just idle gossip, but don't worry about that. You don't need to be involved with that. So life just moves on in the kingdom, except for David. Again, David is the one who committed this act, this heinous act in the first place. And the guilt eated, excuse me, ate away at his soul. He could not repress it. He could not stamp it down enough. Always, it was just bubbling at the surface as he is constantly at war with himself. And I know that because, look at Psalm 32 real quick. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel, but go, with, go to Psalm 32, another psalm that's connected with the same scene. And notice how David describes himself as he is here, trying to keep all of those feelings at bay uh, at what he knows that he had done. Notice Psalm 32, verse 
number two, or excuse me, verse number three. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is David. In those intervening days between when Nathan finally encounters him in his own throne room. And between that and when all of this first went down. David is being eaten away by the spirit of God himself. His bones as he says are wasting away. I imagine David just writhing and tossing and turning. Unable to get any sort of sleep. Unable to get any sort of rest. Because he's constantly thinking about the thing that he had tried. And actually was quite successful in hiding. And such is when the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to meet with him. Meets with this king who is at war with himself. And we have that famous parable, which I'll read to you, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. As Nathan goes and approaches King David, of course, Nathan has been somewhat clued into what has occurred by the word of the Lord. And notice, and the Lord sends Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had had bought. And he brought it up, and and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he had done this thing and because he had no pity. And in those words, Nathan said to David, you are the man. This story, perhaps David thinks it's an actual account of something that has occurred in the palace. And as a king, he says, we need to get justice for this guy. This guy who had a lamb stolen from him. And not just a lamb, a lamb that was like his pet. It was like a part of his own family. And it was taken from him cruelly and so coldly. And when this rich man had more than enough to provide for this traveler that was visiting him. How dare that man. Unrealizing David was that that man was him. He was the man. All of his thirst for justice and all of his vehemence for trying to get this guy to pay for what, for taking what did not belong to him. This should have been directed at himself. He was the man who deserved to be tried and punished so severely. Because he was the king who took what was not his, even though he had been given everything. And even Nathan makes this point. Look at verse 7, continuing. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? in his sight. 
You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your eyes and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. Fascinating words, I think, here. As Nathan is speaking on behalf of Yahweh, he says, I would have given you anything that you would have asked. I had given you everything. I had given you everything to be as what I have made you to be. The greatest king that Israel has ever known. And yet here you are, taking what was not yours. And with those words, David is sufficiently defeated. As he says in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Hear these words utterly best, David, as he is uh, here brought face to face with his sin. And I think for us, perhaps we can try to get a little glimpse, but if we just read these texts, it's hard to understand how dejected David truly was. And that, I think, is why we have Psalm 51. Because this gives us a glimpse of truly what was going through David's mind and how truly devastated he was. This is a guttural prayer in Psalm 51. And it constitutes those little moments between him being brought face to face with his sin. And as he goes and spends all night weeping and lamenting and crying out to God, I have sinned against you. He's praying for repentance. And he holds nothing back in Psalm 51. All of these insecurities that he has, all these vulnerabilities that he has, he's laying them bare. He's laying them before the God who could do something about it. The God who knew about them all in the, in the first place. What would it profit trying to hide anything from the one who sees everything? God doesn't look on the outward appearance as it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He looks on the heart. He knows What David has already done. His hiding is so futile. And finally he comes to that point. Where he opens up the floodgates. Of all of those things. He's tried to repress. And tried to hide. And tried to put back. In the darkest deepest corner of his soul. But God knew. And by his spirit, he brings him to this place where he's praying desperately to have things made right. And he's praying to the only one who can make things right. So what does he pray for? What does this prayer of repentance look like and sound like? Well, that's a long way of just saying there's three things I want to look at this morning out of Psalm 51. The first that make up this prayer of repentance is the humility of sin's acknowledgement. The humility of sin's acknowledgement. Look again at verse number 3. Where David acknowledges, actually vocalizes what he has done. Notice he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
As he had hinted at in Psalm 32, he knows what he is wrestling with. He knows the wrongs that he has committed. And it's almost as if a veil has been pulled over his eyes and there's nothing else he can see, nothing else he can think about. He is tossing and turning and wrestling with himself because he knows and that he knows that his sins are ever before him. He didn't have to be reminded of them by Nathan, perhaps. It's not like he had forgotten about what he had done. But this prophetic rebuke that comes to him effectively keeps uh, keeps David cornered. where, Where the prophet says, you are the man. And with those words, David's charade of trying to act like he's put together. That he has everything figured out. That he has no flaw. That he has no chink in his armor. He has no faults that he has to cover up. All of that is over. All of that's done. That game is up. No more pretense. No more masks. No more faking it. He couldn't fake it any longer. He was a sinner. There was no getting around that. He was very aware his transgressions were ever in front of his face. It was almost, I can imagine him almost closing his eyes and thinking about all of those things that he had done. As if he were doing them all over again. He was a sinner. And here he says, notice in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He knows that from birth this has been always who he was. When he says this, he's not trying to excuse his actions. Actually, he's trying to confess the depth of his condition. He is a sinner, not just because he does sinful things, not just because of the actions that he has done that are wrong and reprehensible. He is a sinner to the core of who he is. He is a sinner by nature. His entire being is woven in sin. As he exits his mother's womb, he is a sinner. He had broken the law of God, yes, and he had broken the law of man, and he rightly stood condemned, and that surely struck him something silly. But here he recognizes that this is who he is. It's a humbling thing. To recognize that very fact. I am a sinner. Not just because I do sinful things. But because that's who I am. We are sinners by nature. And I would say part of repentance is coming to that very conclusion, coming to grips with the fact that you have a problem that you cannot remedy. If you are a sinner by nature, a sinner by birth, there's nothing you can do to undo that problem. It's a remedy that you cannot fix. It sort of reminds me of a group that actually started in the basement of a church, Alcoholics Anonymous. No one who has ever made it through that program has ever made it through without first admitting that they are an alcoholic. And in fact, that's step one of their infamous 12 steps. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. If you can't admit that, nothing else really matters. If you can't admit that you don't, if you can't admit that you have a problem, nothing else will really take, nothing else will really work. And I would say, similarly, when it comes to our relationship with God, until we first acknowledge that we are sinners and that sin problem is unmanageable by you and I, and no matter what we do, then nothing else will really matter. We have a sin problem. And it can't be managed by us. 
And if we don't admit that we have a sin problem, then what are we being saved from? This is repentance, my friends. It's meaningless unless we are willing to acknowledge who we are. Sinners needing mercy. Not people who do bad things that need to be taught how to do better things. We aren't people who've checked the wrong boxes, and so now we got to check the right ones. Here's some bad actions. Here's some good actions to replace those bad actions. We are sinners to the core of our being, and the only thing that will get us out of being sinners to the core of our being is what? New birth. Salvation. By blood and by water, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We are sinners needing mercy, needing resurrection. And that's exactly what God and his son Christ alone has come to offer. As the apostle John says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise. And dare I say, a guarantee that those who have sins can find cleansing and forgiveness predicated on the fact that you confess that you are a sinner who needs cleansing and forgiveness in the first place. This is the hard part. The humiliating part. No one likes to admit that they're deficient. No one likes to admit that they have flaws and faults and failures and blemishes and black marks and all those sorts of dark and dastardly things that we shudder to think that we've ever done or ever said or ever thought. So what do we do? We pretend that we don't have them. We dress ourselves up. We make our lives look as clean and as Instagram worthy as we can. So it appears that we don't have problems, that we don't have deficiencies, that we don't have sin. And yet who knows, who sees the searcher of hearts, God himself who looks not on the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. He's the one who sees who we truly are, who we really are. And he says, as long as you confess There is forgiveness waiting for you. There is cleansing waiting for you. And this is the mind-boggling thing to the degree that we downplay our sin is the same degree to which we will diminish what God can do in his grace. If we pretend that our problem of sin is not that bad, what have we just done? We've said that Jesus, he didn't really need to die. His grace is not that effective. I don't really need that much sacrifice. See, the greater we realize that our problem of sin is completely unmanageable, the greater that God's grace will be in our eyes. Grace that is greater than all of our sin only makes sense when we realize that our sin is truly great. It's a great problem of sin that we all have here this morning. Yet this is what the Holy Spirit does. Just as he has done with David here, he has ushered him, brought him to this point where he realizes that he is a sinner and that is all that he is. 
He's tilling the ground, so to speak, this Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit of God and his ministry to us. Part of that, yes, is comfort, but also part of that is the conviction that he brings, which works like a tiller that's tilling the ground of our souls, preparing us for God's work of mercy and restoration. Which brings me to the second point. The humility of sin's acknowledgement, also the horror of sin's magnitude. Notice what David says in verse 4, because he says, my sin is ever before me. But then notice verse 4, against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here David also now acknowledges and pinpoints who he ultimately offended with this sin. And it corresponds to that verse we read in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, where he says that against you, God, against God alone, I have committed this horrible crime, this horrible breach of righteousness, which I think at first, at least it does to me, perhaps it does to you, it might strike us odd to think that. Maybe our thoughts go, what about Bathsheba? (laughs) What about Uriah? Aren't they the victims here? Yes, indeed they are. I think when David is praying these words, he's not looking again to avoid sort of any earthly sort of reconciliation that must take place with those other families. It's very apparent, I think, through the text that David had victimized both Bathsheba and Uriah in his quest to take for his own what did not belong to him. But the point of all of this is that in that process... Of looking and taking what didn't belong to him. He was just again copying what got us into this mess in the first place. He was once again copying the sin of his first parents in the garden. Adam and Eve. If you remember in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve. They take of the fruit that they were explicitly told. That they were not supposed to take of. But that sin was not merely just. A bad choice. Oops, my bad. The sin of Adam and Eve is more uh, sort of in the vein of heavenly insurrection. Because remember the certain serpent's deception to Adam and Eve? What did he tempt them with? Eat of this fruit and you will be like God. You will have all of that knowledge, all of divine insight. You will be as gods. And ever since then, human beings have continuously been deceived and duped into thinking that they can be their own god. That, my friends, is the essence of all sin. Man thinking that he can be his own god, that he can make his own happiness, that he can find his own fulfillment through things that he does, that he can manufacture his own sense of meaning and produce his own sense of pleasure even at the expense of others that's what sin is by taking Bathsheba for himself David was acting as his own God by taking Uriah's life he was acting as God in that moment that he has authority over other people's lives and I would say we do the same thing when we sin We put ourselves in the spot where only God belongs. And perhaps we don't think about our sin in those certain terms. But we ought to. 
Because every time we sin, we are repeating that lie of Genesis 3. We were repeating and sort of going along and copying in that same sort of legacy of you can be your own God. When we take what is not ours, when we, when we put our needs uh, before the needs of others, when we say things without considering other people. When we put ourselves in the center of all that we do and think and say we are carrying on the legacy, you can be like God. That's the magnitude of our sin. It wasn't just taking a cookie out of the cookie jar. You were acting as God. You are your own sovereign. You are your own king. And you are the only one who has authority over your own life. You are usurping the place that only belongs to the Lord himself in that moment. And we're not just hurting those around us. Not just victimizing those who might be near us. We are also hurting God himself. That's how big your sin is. I think that ought to humble us. It ought to make us horrified when we realize that our sin has that type of an effect. But by the same token, this magnitude of sin also, I think, also shows us exactly what Jesus has done to absolve our sin, which brings me to point number three. The humility of sin's acknowledgement, the horror of sin's magnitude, but the hope of sin's absolution. The hope of sin's absolution. Notice verse 1. David says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He begins this prayer and he knows exactly what he needs. He knows exactly what he is desperate for. He is desperate to be clean again. He wants to be made whole again. He wants to have all of the offense of his sin completely blotted out. That tainted record that he now has, he wants it wiped clean. He cannot bear to live another moment with the stain of his sin still on his life. But as we've already seen... And as David clearly knows, he can do nothing about this in and of himself. He is not powerful to wash away sins in and of himself. Himself, trying to clean himself from his sins, is like trying to make a table clean with a dirty dish towel. You're just spreading the mess. (laughs) Just making it worse. Leaving streaks. It's not going to work. It's not ever Going to leave a table that's clean. And the same with David's soul. No matter what he could do. No matter what he could muster. No matter what type of faith or spirituality he could put forth. It would never amount to a clean heart. And so that leaves him to pray to the only God who can do something about his dirty heart. And notice what he prays. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. He's crying out to God, to the only one who can wash him thoroughly and make him clean. He says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was sort of a medicinal regimen, so to speak, that would aid in the assistance of healing lepers. You can read about it in Leviticus. Which just, again, suggests what David clearly knows. He is diseased. He is filthy. He has a problem he cannot remedy. What does he need? He doesn't need just a heart that's a little bit better, he needs a new one. As he says, create in me a clean heart. But notice as he says, again, verse number 10, clean in me, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. As he said in verse number 7, wash me and I shall be clean. It's the same word that's used in verse number 2 where he says, wash me thoroughly. This word wash is an interesting word. It's a word which alludes to and refers to the way they used to clean clothing in ancient biblical times. It literally translates to wash by treading. Back then they didn't have, they didn't have uh, washing machines. They didn't have a washer and dryer in every house. They had laundromats. They just looked a lot different. A biblical laundromat, you might know, consisted of this large vat in the middle of an open space. And then they would take the fuller, the the launderer would take all the clothes that would need to be cleaned and they would put them all in the middle of that vat and they would begin stomping on all the clothes, making sure everything is stirred, almost like you would imagine stomping grapes for wine. That's what they would do. They would stomp and stomp and stir and stir. And it sort of mimics what a washing machine does with the the washing machine and the tumbler going round and round. And they would do that over and over again. The only difference, instead of detergent, instead of bleach, you know what they would use? They would use urine. That's what they were stomping all the clothes in because it was a natural sort of bleaching agent. Of course, that would involve a lot more process so it wouldn't smell bad. But that's what a launderer would do. Stomp and stomp and get it all clean. This raises, I think, our eyebrows as we realize, as David says, do the same to me. Tread on my heart. Tread on my soul. Tread on me, God, because, yes, I need you to wring out all the sin in me like a piece of cloth, like a piece of clothing. Put me in your vat. Stomp on me and make me clean. That's what David is praying for. That's what David is pleading for as he's in his room gutting this prayer out. He's saying, God, I need your cleansing. And that's exactly what God does. He cleanses him, makes him whole, makes him new. And uses him for purposes that David had no even inkling of what he was going to be involved in. Because again... He's forgiven, he is made clean, and he's allowed to still be a part of the line of promise 
through which the Messiah would come. And even still, centuries later, he's still, even yes, after this, referred to as what? A man after God's own heart. Even after all of this scandal, all of this sin. Which I think just goes to show that no no matter how dirty you are, ours is a God who specializes in cleaning us up. That's who God is. He's the ultimate fuller, if you will. The only one who can get your filthy and sin-stained life thoroughly clean. And in fact, as David has just referenced in verse number 7... That when God's done with you, you're not only clean, as he says, you're whiter than snow. You're cleaner than clean. Cleaner than anything. It's like those commercials for like Lysol or whatever. They promise you can clean the service, but what do they always say? They can't promise 100% cleanliness because then they could be accused for false advertising. So what do they say? This cleans 99.99% of bacteria on whatever surface that you have. And you can eat off this countertop or what have you. God's promise to us is better than 99.9%. It's better than any promise of almost clean and, and there's just a little bit left that you have to do. What God says to us in his word that when he cleanses you, you are whiter than snow. 100 million percent. That doesn't even make sense mathematically, but go with me. You are cleaner than clean. And to do this, he doesn't use bleach. He uses his own blood. To get you and I clean of all of our sins, he absolves us in the blood-cleansing flow that streams from his son's side as he hangs from a cross with nails between his hands and in his feet. And there, right there, that's where you and I find absolution where all of our sins are washed away precisely because God's only begotten Son has taken all of our sins on Himself and He covers them there with His blood. As it says in Colossians, He cancels our sin. He wipes it away forever. It's the same word used in Psalm 51. Blot out, cancel, wipe away. Make me clean. Make me whole. Make me new. This is what David is praying for. And my friends, this is what we have in Jesus Christ here this morning. I don't know what sins you've tried to push down and keep away. And you hate it when things occur and they make those sins kind of bubble up. It's like a monster that you keep locked away in the, in the deepest, darkest corner, in the basement of all basements in your life because you don't want to think about it. You don't want to have to be reminded of it. And every time you do, you have to go through the same process of, of locking it back up again. Maybe you think you have a, a past that's unforgivable. You're too far gone. There's no hope for what I've done, for what I've said, for how I have made my life such a wreck. I am so deeply stained, no amount of detergent could ever make me clean. If you're thinking like that this morning, there's good news. Because there is one who can make you clean. 
who can absolve every single one of your sins. And in fact, he already has at the cross. He's taken them all. He says, it is finished. They are paid for. They are done. All that's left for you to do this morning is to repent and believe in the life-giving flow of God's absolution and his son's death. That's what the gospel extends to you. It's offered to you freely as a gift. The only thing that's stopping you is you. Just like those who go through AA. Unless you admit you have a sin that needs this type of savior, you will never rejoice in this salvation, in the salvation that he freely gives to all who believes. And there's nothing that you can confess that will surprise him. There's nothing that you could come forward and admit that would make God raise his eyebrows. There's nothing that you could confess to or repent of that he doesn't already know. He knows it all. He sees through all your charades of trying to keep yourself together, of all of your pretenses, of all the the acts that you try to keep up, to pretend that you have it all put together. There's nothing that you can confess that will change what God freely offers. Absolution, forgiveness, because his son died and took your place. That is what the gospel gives to each and every single person in this room and in the whole wide world. And the only thing that's stopping folks all over the place, perhaps even some of you here this morning, So we hate admitting that we have a problem. The thing is, repentance is not sort of a key that unlocks God's forgiveness. It is only a response to God having already forgiven you. God took your sins on the cross. And the only thing that's stopping you from being absolved is you repenting and believing. That ought to make us shudder. It makes me shudder every single time I think about it because there are souls who are going into eternity having the free gift of salvation and righteousness and cleanliness offered to them and they're going into eternity, into eternal death, having never opened that gift. My friends, this morning is extended to you once more. The gospel is here. Jesus has forgiven you. Repent and believe in the good news. That's what Jesus offers. You know, that's what we'll be singing about when we get to to heaven. Let me read you this verse and I'll close. I just find this awesome. This idea of being washed, washed in blood. Revelation chapter 7. Look, I'll read you Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what John sees in this wonderful uh, vision of glory. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I, John, said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have, their, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, from now till all of eternity, we're going to still be singing about the glorious hope 
of God's absolution, except it will no longer be hope, it will be reality. We will be clean. My friends, this morning, we ask that question. What can wash away my sin? And the same refrain is repeated as in glory, as in the hymn, nothing but the blood of Jesus. No matter what sin that you have, no matter what you think cannot be forgiven, the blood of Jesus can cover it. No matter what you've done, there is a new and clean heart that Jesus is waiting to give you. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, my friends, to make today the day of repentance and belief. Let us pray.